Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom, this is yet another edition of Editor's Note. I'm Jonathan Hassan, of course, and joining me for today's program is my dear friend, uh, I'd say even mentor, John O'Sullivan, uh, the president of the Danube Institute, former uh, aide and uh, policy writer, speechwriter of Margaret Thatcher, among others, uh, and uh, Ishtavan Kis, uh, who is the executive director of uh, the Danube Institute. Welcome to Jerusalem. It's uh, great to have you here. Thank you very much. We always start this program with uh, prayer, inviting our Lord to join us for the conversation. And uh, I'd like to invite all of you at home to do so as well. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to have both uh, John and Ishtavan here uh, with me in the studio for uh, this edition of Editor's Note. Lord, I pray that you'll guide this conversation that will truly have uh, uh, clarity in mind and uh, uh, that whatever we do or say will be to your glory. We give you all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, I'd I'd like to start with you, John. Um, You have uh, quite the remarkable history, curriculum vitae, uh, if you will. We won't go through all of it because it would be an episode of its own. But... um, you're both here, obviously, right now for the purpose of uh, shooting a program that we do together. Mm. That's right. It's my, called My Brother's Keeper. And it's an examination of the way in which Christian communities, particularly in the Middle East, but also in Africa and, and indeed Western Europe, um, are suffering from um, all kinds of different threats, um, some violence, uh, some more sophisticated ones are the hostility of secular modernity to them in Western European countries, for example. Um, We think that this is an important topic, but it has to be sensibly and prudently investigated and considered. And so, in a sense, the program consists of two parts. The first part, which we're doing at the moment with you, is we are looking at the ways in the problems that there seem to be and the ways we should be investigating them. Then my colleagues are going to be going to these countries and in, and actually conducting a much more uh, intensive and uh, deep investigation. And then they'll come back for a second series of programs and give those results. And I think that I think that's going to be very revealing, very surprising. We'll find things we didn't know about as well as the things we do already suspect. So that's the idea of the program. Brilliant. Of course, most of those countries are Muslim-majority states. Uh, some of those European countries may yet be uh, become Muslim-majority states in the near future, unfortunately. But uh, one of the things that I, I find quite remarkable, there's plenty of studies on anti-Semitism. There are plenty of studies um, on so-called Islamophobia or whatever you want to call that. There is little to none study being conducted on persecution of Christians. Why is that? 
Well, that's a question we considered, as a matter of fact, at a conference we ran in the Danube Institute, ran in Dublin, Dublin, uh, sorry, in London, um, uh, two two years ago. Um, we didn't just look at Christians; uh, we also looked at, for example, Yazidis. We we looked mm-hmm. at uh, perse- persecuted believers, and we looked at the way Western governments, in particular, looked away from the problems, didn't want to engage in them. Uh, I don't want to be too harsh. The British government has recently upped its game on that. For example, but nonetheless, there was uh, the, the the lack of a commitment to that until quite recently uh, gave us the title "Invisible Victims," uh, the people whom mm. it just doesn't really notice. And I think we have to look into ourselves and ask why that is. I think it's to do with the fact that we um, it, we in the West, particularly the secular elites in the West would like to talk to the rest of the world um, as if really they had nothing to do with Christianity, as if the values of Western societies don't stem in part from Christianity and long Christian heritage, as well as the Enlightenment. They, They are the two sources because they want to talk to the rest of the world as if they are talking, um, um, liberal political theory. That's the whole basis of our society they want to claim. And that makes them chary of looking uh, at uh, Christian persecution because, uh, again, they don't want to emerge. Well, if you think of the reputation France used to have as the guardian of Christian communities in the Middle East, that has really vanished. And I think that it's vanished because the French are embarrassed by that and would like to, in a sense, present France and other countries in Europe to the world uh, as a, a post-Christian as, but fundamentally thoroughly secular society where the liberal values stem entirely from the Enlightenment, and that's not true. Even though when I travel today to Paris, um, I mean, it's not the Paris that I remember. Uh, France has completely changed its face in so many ways, and to what degree do you see this uh, continuing in this direction? Uh, well, it will continue until something stops it. And and it's hard, it's impossible to predict the future, so I can't tell you now what that's going to be. But if you go, for example, to Ireland, um, which I we are doing, we're holding a conference in Ireland soon, um, it's gone from being a one-ideology Catholic society to a one-ideology post-Christian liberal society, which is actually hostile to Catholicism in a profound way. And um, and that, uh, that I have to think when you when you experience as a nation this complete turnabout i have to think it's superficial ultimately and that we're going to have to in a sense retrace the irish are going to have to retrace their steps the it's more natural for the british who invented liberalism in a sense to move in that direction but even they are going to have to find a way of giving Christians a place at the table in a way they do not have because they're not regarded as a minority. And they're regarded, insofar as they are, they're regarded as a slightly shameful elderly uncle up in the attic who they hope won't come down to Christmas dinner. Indeed. I think if we take what you just said and apply that to the Middle East, uh, of course, and even here in Israel, Christians in the Middle East look to the West Hmm. for help. And that's one of the reasons that I think that there is a lot of hopelessness 
among Christians, uh, whether whatever denomination we're speaking about, yeah. whether it's uh, evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, everybody has always looked to the West for that mm-hmm. help. And when the West has lost yes. its understanding and, and comprehension of yeah. what Christianity is all about, ultimately we see those numbers of Christians here in this region dwindling. Yes. And uh, they seek to migrate to the West, and who knows, maybe replenish it with uh, a new generation of Christians. But uh, obviously, those numbers are too small to really impact. Well, you never know, do you? Um, after all, relatively small numbers of Christian missionaries managed to convert people in the most inhospitable of, of countries, uh, for example, Japan. Indeed. And, and indeed, some of those Christians died as heroic martyrs, suffering uh, uh, terrible situations when the Japanese government turned against that. Um, so again, I, um, we, we have to rely on the providence of God and, and on the, in, when looking ahead really far. But as a matter in the short term, yes, of course, it's going to be very difficult for, uh, for, the, for modern societies to cope, uh, particularly modern secular societies, to cope with to giving out fair treatment and protection to all religions in ways that um, I think we necessarily, in societies in Western Europe, we have to reflect that it is Christianity which has shaped those societies, it's Christianity which has shaped its culture, its arts, its laws. Um, It has to have, maybe not in in a strictly legal sense, but it has to have an element of favoritism um, to uh, Christianity because Christianity is the source of its identity. And if we don't recognize that in common sense ways, non-discriminatory ways, we won't, re- we won't have a society that, as it, that is at home with itself. And yet, uh, ultimately, Muslims in Europe and other uh, religions in Europe have the backing of nation states yeah. in the Middle East and elsewhere. We see, obviously, Qatar and Turkey, uh, the, the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood today, of course, Morocco was also a substantive part of that, invest heavily in the Islamic communities throughout Europe. Yeah. And I'd like to ask you, Ishtavan, uh, to what degree is this uh, a problem? Uh, because it is also embroiled with foreign interference on European soil. At a time when, of course, Hungary, which uh, you right now came from, comes out and says, yes, but we're a Christian country and we want to preserve it that way, and then you're labeled as a bigot. What's that about? Well, thank you for the question. And it's strange because actually Hungary did uh, introduce a law a couple of years back which made uh, foreign influence to NGOs much more difficult. So they had to uh, go through a rigorous process uh, and register and also uh, of, of a certain amount of money they had to put in all of their documents that they are a foreign-founded organization, which of course got <laughs> a heavy attacks from the European Union. And actually we had to change it because uh, they said it's against European Union law, which is... Uh, which frank- is corrupt to the 
the core at this stage under Sadly, investigation. We, we, right. The Qatar, uh, Qatar uh, thing, we can see that uh, there's serious problems with foreign influence in the European Union. So perhaps that's why they didn't like our law, because uh, <laughs> it could have been an, uh, an interesting example for other countries to follow. But I think that's crazy. So uh, especially when these organizations might campaign during uh, political campaigns and elections, uh, I mean, you have to have some form of, uh, uh, should I say, observation uh, regarding this found. So I think that's a huge problem because it's, again, kind of twisting this liberal ideology that, uh, you know, uh, there's a freedom of uh, movement, money, which uh, 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 is, is fine. But uh, you have to have some form of uh, observation of this, because if you don't have it, you also open up, uh, let's say, malicious uh, influence to your countries as well, not just beneficial uh, influence. And perhaps now that's happening. And uh, also, if you look at countries uh, like the UK or France, uh, I mean, a lot of the mosques which are being built are built by uh, foreign states. And, uh, you know, the imams who uh, talk there are actually getting their cues from these countries, which is crazy. I mean, uh, uh, it's uh, it's okay if the, the mosque is in Saudi Arabia or Turkey, but I'm not sure if it's okay if it's in London. Uh, and without any uh, form of, uh, should I say, control, uh, you will have a, a potential for of terrorism and um, and hate speech because nobody really is, uh, is looking at what these uh, governments are doing at, at these mosques. Uh, and it's not just a problem in the European Union. It's been a problem in uh, places like Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, where uh, very secularized Muslim communities are now becoming radicalized because of these uh, mosques where they are uh, indoctrinating with them with forms of Islam which were not really uh, dominant in that region because that was a, a quite liberal uh, Islam. In Indeed. Uh, how do you see, though, at this stage, all these various um, streams, basically, coming from different countries? Obviously, there's foreign interference from uh, other countries because they seek to attain leverage and ultimately benefit from that leverage for their own sake. But when you see those uh, corruption scandals target particularly those in government, particularly the liberal left and to a certain degree even the extreme left, including non-governmental organizations that so-called promote uh, human rights and, and seek to make a true difference of what uh, Europe should look like, suddenly you realize that, wait, those norms and values that they're trying to promote have nothing to do with Europe. Where is that coming from? Why isn't there any accountability to what is being done in Europe and the European Union in particular, by the way, which also impacts and attacks, basically, time and again, not only Hungary and Poland, not only Italy right now under Meloni, but also Israel. Where is that? I think you opened up a can of worms, so to speak, but uh, there's a very interesting uh, paradox called the Böckenförder paradox. He was a, a German theologian and, and legal scholar, and he basically claimed that um, liberal democracy is undermining uh, its, its values with uh, too much focus on liberal and not much on democracy. So we have perhaps live in societies where we don't realize what you were talking with John as well, that all our societies are based on the Christian religion. All our values, uh, rule of law, human rights, uh, even democracy, I think, is not a uh, happen chance that it, it's it's evolved in, uh, you know, Europe or, or countries uh, which have a European heritage. Uh, uh, and if you go against those, you have you face 
face a real risk of getting rid of these values and have societies which uh, might collapse because they don't have the necessary glues and values to keep them together. And going back to the actual problem itself, I think some of these people really believe that they're doing the right thing. They have this uh, ideology this, which replaced uh, Christianity or national identity with their own ideology, which uh, uh, I think from their side is, is a benevolent ideology. So they really believe that we will have this world state, perhaps uh, uh, we will have a uh, a very nice multicultural world state uh, from you know 100 years from now. One world order. Yes, Indeed. where everybody's equal. Uh, there's no religion. There's no racial differences. Which uh, you know we can say it's a it's a nice uh, uh, end goal. Uh, I mean. A lot of people agreed with the communism's end goal, but I don't think it's achievable. Uh, I don't think actually it was a good goal, I mean, communism, but uh, but I do understand some people did think it was. Uh, but it's just unachievable, and it's the same with this ideology as well. So, of course, some of these are easily uh, uh, corrupted, but I think a lot of them are actually generally trying to do the good thing because they are living in this uh, bubble, and they have been teach, uh, teach this in universities a lot. Uh, I mean, I can see it at actually our own institute. Uh, I mean, Hungary is not as bad as a lot of uh, other European countries, but I mean, a lot of our interns, when they first come to the institute, they just, you know, say the usual mantras which they learn in, in university, which are very liberal. Uh, well, I don't actually like to use the word liberal because I don't think this is liberal. It's, it's more progressive values. Uh, and when you, you know, kind of talk with them and show them things, then they realize that a lot of the things which they have been taught in university are just not really true, or it's it's or it's a very idolized very uh, interesting point world, world, worldview. John? I'd like to come in on this, yes. Um, It's important for us to remember that when we're looking at countries like uh, England, which is my country, um, that the people who come to this country, very, in um, most cases, and I'm uh, nervous sometimes about the recent group of migrants who've come in who are all young men, um, but most of them come here uh, wanting a better life, um, they are open to the society. They don't expect to to be a massive influential force in it. They want a good life and a decent life. Now, um, I, for, but the, one of the problems is that officialdom has got into the habit of taking their side against the society in ways that they themselves find often mystifying. I'll give you a simple example. Whenever Easter is coming around, Good Friday, there is a spate of stories saying that some local council has banned the sale of hot cross buns which uh, because it's offensive to Muslims. Now, if you follow that story, you'll then find some local uh, Muslim leader has said, I don't know what they're talking about. Of course, we we, uh, we have nothing against Easter. We're living. We know it's a Christian country by heritage, and you know, I always wish my Christian friends Merry Christmas. And and so you get, uh, you don't have this kind of. Um, uh, the tenderness towards um, s- the sympathies of, of of immigrants is overdone, is overprotective, and the society as a whole is is quite more welcoming than you might think. Now, what's the objection to that? The objection to that is what about all the polls showing that young men, um, um, young Islamic men, um, have quite strong. Um, uh, hostile attitudes to the society and um, and feel, for example, um, sometimes anti-Semitic ones, but also hostile to, to Britain? Well, I think the answer is that 
the British have failed to give young men an ideal of British society and the British identity, which is challenging, which is built upon admiration for the country's achievements. And in general, it, um, what, what officialdom has done until very recently, and maybe still, it, what, it's, what it does, it gives a kind of milk and water um, timid social democratic uh, idea of community and of citizenship and identity and and that doesn't seem exciting or interesting to young men they want something more demanding and we in the west not just in britain but in the whole west we have to find some way of giving a more uh, solid and brave and interesting identity to our young people. We have we used to be able to do it. We did it in the empire in a way that was effectively um, multiculturalism. The Indian army was full of Sikhs and Muslims who actually uh, and Hindus who actually outperformed most of the rest of us in terms of bravery and courage and, and loyalty to Queen Victoria and so on. We've lost that knack, and we need to find a way back to getting it. The will to sacrifice, I think, is one of the main angles. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I had just recently a conversation with a few very uh, senior um, generals in, mm -hmm. in the context of NATO. Um, and I asked them, uh, to what degree, considering the fact that NATO is today, or Europe today, mm -hmm. it's weak. The militaries are weak. Yeah. The composition of NATO is worthless without the United States mm -hmm. and Turkey to a certain extent. Now, it's yeah. not because of the size of the Turkish military. The quality of the Turkish military is also not very highly valued. But it's one thing that everybody else doesn't have. Mm. And that is the will to sacrifice. Yes. To I what... Well, I was just going to say in the Korean War, it's going back a bit, but the Korean War, the Turks were the people who, when they were captured by the North Koreans, none of them broke. None of Amazing. them. And that wasn't true for other countries. No, it's it's the inability to understand. And, and this is, I think, also one of the points that detaches today's society. Um, driven by the, the academic elites that you referred to earlier, which are indeed advancing progressive ideologies on the youth of today, um, we're living in a society where sacrifice, was, which is the essence of our faith in, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for us, there is no connection to that sacrifice. People are not willing to sacrifice. Yeah. Even when we're talking about now the war between Russia and Ukraine, many people, there were polls, there were studies, everybody was trying to understand to what degree is the West willing to sacrifice in order to hold Russia accountable, so to speak, for its actions. Ultimately, most countries said, well, um, our youth are not willing to sacrifice. Our societies are not willing to sacrifice. It's so deeply embedded. Now, it brings a question to... What degree is the education system in European countries so faulty? And by the way, Israel bases much of its education on Europe, on particularly the United yeah. Kingdom, the Netherlands, and the United States as well. But, you know, when you look towards those academic institutions, the old academic institutions, Oxford, Princeton, uh, Harvard, and so on, 
everything coming out of there is woke. Yes. What is happening there, John? Well, I want a bit of encouragement before I answer that question. Please do. And that is that uh, you, you're quite right to say that the armed forces in uh, Western Europe and uh, most of the West uh, are weak in the sense that we don't give them enough money to buy the equipment they need. And at the moment, of course, we're giving that equipment to the Ukrainians, so we're going to have to start producing more of it. But um, one thing they have done is the armed forces have integrated different um, religious and ethnic groups very effectively. And that's because all of these guys are going to have to, you know, be prepared to take a hit for each other, to to um, to um, sacrifice themselves. And that's clear from, that's what, that's what milit- basic military training instills, among other skills. So that's the key, uh, that's a key thing we should learn. Um, how do we uh, do this without, uh, to the wider society, uh, without having a threat? Israel has a threat, uh, not as much as it used to have, but nonetheless, you are, in, you are in, in the nature of things, a vulnerable, threatened society, and that gives you a stiffening, which, uh, which I think Western Europeans don't have. But the fact is, the world is now moving into a much more dangerous phase, and the immediate post-Cold War world which we were taking a holiday from history, is vanishing. And we are going to be facing a threat to the European continent for some time, whatever the the precise nature of that threat is. And I think that may give us the way, show us the path to restoring, I don't so much say the military virtues, but the stronger civic virtues. Uh, I'd like to hear your take on this as we don't have very much time left, but um, just a small remark. All those um, migrants who, who were in Ukraine, they're not there right now. No. The majority have fled together with the women and children, including young men in military age. So to count on uh, the, the uh, non-indigenous communities of uh, the respective countries, and I'm not talking about mm. everyone, of course, mm. is potentially flawed considering the case study of Ukraine. We'll see. But so far, uh, in um, well, I'll give you the example. Vladimir Bukovsky, the Russian dissident, was a scientist at Cambridge. Um, he did not intend to become a British subject, naturalized. But when the Falklands War happened, he said, I felt the country come together with a kind of click. And I thought, this is a real country. And he became a British citizen. Now, I suspect that would be what happened with a lot of people in the event of real danger. I think the main problem here is there's no focus on assimilation. So it became a, a, a bad word. You can't use it anymore and you can't uh, put efforts into assimilating these people. And, and if you don't have that, then those people will not be willing to sacrifice. But I think going back to the, the big question, uh, education, I think the problem is that... Uh, I mean, education itself has become very skeptical of, uh, let's say, uh, national histories and uh, national myths. So now what you see in a lot of these countries is that uh, they portray history as a very horrible and bad thing. And it's kind of difficult to instill into people uh, a sense of, of nationhood and, and you know, a belonging if they think that their country was a horrible, let's say, slave owner, colonizer, uh, which did nothing good during its history. Uh, and also, I think, uh, beside this, there's, there's very much focus on uh, rights, which is, of course, good, but nothing an obligation. So now kids only learn we have rights for this, 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 and this. 
but no, nothing about obligations, which go into the sacrifice uh, problem as well. Indeed. Well, unfortunately, this is all the time we have, that we have for today's program, but it was very interesting indeed to listen to both of you today and uh, partake in this uh, discussion. Esteban, thank you so very much. John Sullivan, of course. Thank, thank you, as always. And I'd like to thank all of you at home. Until next time, for yet another episode of TV7 Editor's Note. Shalom. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.